and welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And we're in the same place. Ah! Hi! Hi! We're recording from the same microphone. So, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll fix it later. Yeah. But I am here on the West Coast. Yeah. Um, because we are going to the American Anthropological Association uh, annual meeting this weekend, which is in the past for you. Yeah. Hi, past us and past you and now you. Hello to the future. Hello. Yeah. So we're starting on Thursday the 15th and we'll be there Thursday, Friday and Saturday. And we have some cool stuff planned. And by the time this episode comes out, we'll be in the middle of sharing it with all of you. And we are excited to do that. Yes. But but we're also excited because the holidays are coming up. And it's the holiday season. Thanks, Viking. Thanks, Viking. We've got a Valhalla of an episode for you. Oh. <laughs> oh. Yeah. So this week, we are going to talk to you about Viking history, archaeology, art, culture, mythology, and lots more. So let's climb onto our podcast longship <laughs> and let's go a Viking. Yeah. So what do we even mean when we say a Viking? <laughs> Which I will keep saying as a Viking. <laughs> a Viking. It's a verb. It is a verb. You can go a Viking, but you can also be a Viking, a Viking. That's confusing. So who who were the who were the Vikings? We're talking about Norse seafarers who mainly spoke Old Norse language. Uh, who during the late eighth to late eleventh centuries of the Common Era. Uh, raided and traded raiding from, and trading <laughs> from their northern European homelands across wide areas of Europe uh, and they explored westward uh, to Iceland, Greenland, and Vinland. So in doing all this, the Vikings established and engaged in extensive trading networks throughout the known world, known to them, and had a prof- not, there's not like yeah <laughs> unknown world at this point. Oh, where is there? Uh, it's like Bed Bath and Beyond. Like where's the Beyond? <laughs> uh, and they had a profound influence on the economic develop of the economic development of Europe and specifically Scandinavia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we know a lot about Viking life from the sagas. Um, these aren't always the most reliable histories, uh, but they are so in- entrenched within the traditions and the framework of Viking life that we can get a lot of information from them. Even if it's not factually accurate, it's incredibly illuminating into what people thought should be real or they wanted to be real or what couldn't be real. So it's still helpful either way. And so the sagas are stories mostly about the ancient Nordic and Germanic history, early Viking voyages, the battles that took place during said voyages, and migration to Iceland and a feuds between Icelandic families. So feuds in the fjords? Fjord feuds. Fjord feuds. Okay. <laughs> Coming this, this fall to Game Show Network. <laughs> Hosted by Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Fjord feuds. <laughs> These sagas were written in the Old Norse language. Uh, and primarily written in Iceland. So the texts are tales and prose, which share some similarities with the the epic that we know from classical traditions. Um, and they often have stanzas or whole poems in alliterative. They <laughs> they often have uh, stanzas or whole poems in alliterative verse uh, about these quote tales of worthy men. Um, who were often Vikings, sometimes pagan, sometimes Christian. 
And the tales are usually realistic, except for, you know, the legendary sagas, sagas of saints, sagas of bishops, and translated or recomposed romances. And they're sometimes very romanticized and fantastic. Yeah, and speaking of romanticized and fantastic, when we say Viking, we do not mean anyone with horned helmets on their heads. The real Vikings wore helmets, yes, but not horned ones. So, in depictions dating from the Viking Age, again, between the 8th and 11th centuries CE, warriors appear either bareheaded or clad in simple helmets, probably that were made of either iron or leather, or some combination of both. And then, despite years of searching, which I imagine there's just like one guy on a quest to find a horned helmet, but archaeologists have yet to uncover a Viking-era helmet embellished with horns. In fact, only one complete helmet that can definitively be called Viking has turned up. It was discovered in 1943 on a farm in Norway, and it's a 10th century artifact, and it has a rounded iron cap, a guard under the eyes and nose, and no horns. Maybe you're the doe. Oh, it was, it was a lady Viking? <laughs> she didn't have her horns? Or maybe it was seasonal, and they, they like yeah, molt so their horns. Yeah. <laughs> but, but horns on helmets is actually a... Um... A Mesopotamian deity thing. Oh, it's also a Germanic thing. Is it? Yeah. The there there are two places that this image of the strapping Viking in a horn helmet comes from. The first uh, dates back to the 1800s when Scandinavian artists like Sweden's Gustav Malmström included the horned helmet in their portrayals of of raiders. And so when Wagner staged his Ring of the Nibelung. Uh, opera cycle in the 1870s the costume designer created horned helmets for the viking characters sort of emulating these paintings and then this whole stereotype was born but this inspiration may have come from 19th century discoveries of ancient horn helmets that later turned out to predate the vikings yeah so there were horned helmets sort of from uh, pre pre-viking germanic peoples i okay. believe um these people also may have taken a cue from ancient Greek and Roman chroniclers who described Northern Europeans, a bunch of, bunch of barbarians, wearing helmets adorned with all manner of things, including horns, wings, and antlers. But not only did this headgear fall out of fashion at least a century before the Vikings showed up, even if horned helmets were donned by uh, Norse and Germanic priests, it would have been for ceremonial reasons. So, like, if you're wearing a horned helmet into battle, it's not exactly practical. Maybe it's intimidating. Maybe you could use it to to poke people's eyes out. But it probably would have gotten tangled in a tree branch or, <laughs> or like, stuck in somebody's shield or someone could grab it and, and incapacitate you. So it's not, it's not smart battle wear. Dress smart for battle. Dress smart for battle. Not only were Vikings out there not wearing horned <laughs> helmets, they also were expert navigators and seafarers. Um, as evinced by the fact that they got to other continents. Yeah. Uh, they didn't swim there. They did, they did not. Uh, and in order to understand the Vikings' way of traveling, we need to rid ourselves of our current conceptions of nature and navigation. <laughs> Consider me rid of them. <laughs> that didn't take long. No. <laughs> I don't have many. Um, so Anton Egler from the Viking Ship Museum in Roskilde, Denmark, uh, says, back then there were, of course, no compasses, echo sounders, satellite navigation, or radio communication. Okay. Yeah, it's true. Thanks. Yep. He's not wrong. <laughs> uh, and the Vikings had an understanding of nature since they lived in the wild. <laughs> this guy. <laughs> <laughs> they had, like, they didn't. All right. All right, Anton. 
So um, even though they lived in the wild and didn't have science, <laughs> according to an actual expert in, in Viking, Viking navigation, age, yes, <laughs> he's don't oversell it, buddy. <laughs> Um, they they knew uh, the concepts of the cardinal directions so of east, west, north, and south. But to them, navigation was more based on where on where on the horizon the sun rose and how high it was during the day, rather than Earth's magnetism, which underlies the modern compass. Okay, all right, that's fair yep. enough. Cool. Um, so the sun, the moon, and the stars provided the Vikings with a decent understanding of which direction in which they should travel. Hey, hey! Oh, this is that movie. Uh, but in fog and cloudy weather, these celestial bodies are not visible. And on long stretches, a deviation of only a few degrees from the planned route can mean that you end up completely missing your intended destination. Yeah, if you start out a few degrees, that angle gets wider and wider and wider as you go farther <laughs> yeah. and farther, and then you're, you know different you're in a different continent or something yeah for this reason uh the vikings also kept an eye on objects on land when they sailed along the coasts okay a rock with a particular shape for instance or a hilltop could provide some clues to where they were that one looks like a dog <laughs> dog rock uh since there were neither nautical charts nor any written descriptions back then the vikings travelogues consisted of narratives and rhymes and these were passed on orally yeah and how do we know what Viking ships were like? Well, we found some. One of the most famous of these is the Oseberg ship. And it is a well-preserved Viking ship discovered in a large burial mound at the Oseberg farm near Tunsberg in Vestfold County, Norway. So it's buried. It is underground. It's not wrecked. No. Even though it was purposely... Apparently they, like... <laughs> they thought it was? No, apparently, like... They relied solely on, oh. like, <laughs> apparently, yes, even though the Vikings didn't have science, <laughs> they didn't sail under the ground. No, this was a deliberately buried ship. Okay. It's a, it's a like, a, in place of a mausoleum. Like, they're buried okay. in a ship. I'll explain it in a minute. No, I'm just, gosh, I'm excited. <laughs> the ship is commonly acknowledged to be among the finer artifacts to have survived from the Viking era, probably also because it's real, real big. The finer. Mm. The finer things. Yes. Uh, the Oseberg ship and some of its contents are displayed at the Viking Ship Museum in Oslo, Norway. Yeah, so this is the one in Oslo. So they must have franchises because the, the this guy, the Anton Anton yeah. Egler, he's yeah, the yeah. Viking Ship Museum in Denmark. So so I guess everywhere that there were Vikings, they're like, how about a ship museum? Cool. the The burial mound contained numerous grave goods and two female human skeletons. The ship's interment into its burial mound dates from 834 CE, but parts of the ship date from around 800, and the ship itself is thought to be older. So it may have been a ship that really was in use as a okay. ship, but then was interred with, with these two people. How far is it from where ships be? I don't know. I didn't look okay. that up. I don't know how far it is from coastal, but they got it there. I Yeah. So Yeah. Man, um, but navigation. If it's, in, if it's in Norway, Norway's not really... Anywhere in Norway is far from a coast. Yeah, but if you've got an entire ship. Yeah, no, it's big. I get like, it. It's <laughs> yeah. So the ship was excavated uh, by Norwegian archaeologist Hakan Schetelig and Swedish archaeologist Gabriel Gustafsson in 1904 and 1905, so early excavation. The skeletons of two women were found in the grave with the ship. One was probably aged around 80, and she suffered badly from arthritis and other maladies. The second was initially believed to be around 25 or 30, but they did tooth root translucency analysis, um, which we've talked about as a means of aging someone, and that suggested that she was older, maybe in her 50s. Okay. 
So um, it's not clear which one was the more important in life or whether one was sacrificed to accompany the other in death. I mean, it's clear from the, the richness of this burial that they were important people, but we don't really know much about their lives. The younger woman had a broken collarbone, which was initially thought to be evidence that she was a sacrifice. But <laughs> yeah, chopping. Amber just chopped at my neck, but not karate chop. Yeah. <laughs> uh, boy, it's different sitting next yeah. to you. <laughs> Uh, but closer examination showed that this bone had been healing for several several weeks, so okay. it wasn't it wasn't the cause of her death. Also, she was like maybe had a fall, maybe fell out of this ship. <laughs> I don't know what she fell out of <laughs> or what happened. So the the richness of this of this burial and the grave goods that came with it suggest that this was a burial of very high status. One woman wore a very fine red wool dress with a twill pattern, which was a luxury oh, commodity. Oh. She had that luxury twill. And the other wore a plainer blue wool dress uh, with, with a wool veil, so maybe there was some stratification. Maybe this was someone and her maid. Um, neither woman wore anything entirely made of silk, although small silk strips were uh, appliqued onto a tunic worn underneath the red dress. And also in this burial mound, there were the skeletal remains of 14 horses, an ox, and three dogs on the ship. Okay. So, it's a really big ship. <laughs> it's built almost entirely of oak, so it's a big solid ship. It is 21.58 meters long and 5.1 meters broad, so like 60 feet long and 15 feet wide. Okay. So really quite big, with a mast of approximately 9, nine to 10 meters, so 30-foot mast. Mast. Um, and so the ship, someone has calculated, <laughs> with a sail of 90 square meters around, the ship could achieve a speed of up to 10 knots. It, it could go pretty pretty fast. The ship has 15 pairs of oar holes, which means that 30 people could row the ship. Um, other fittings on the ship include a broad steering oar, an iron anchor, a gangplank, and a baler. You know, like if the boat takes on water. It's okay. a bucket that you use to get the water oh, out. Oh, okay. Yeah. Not like if... The boat gets thrown in prison. <laughs> Someone bails you out? No. The bow and stern of the ship are elaborately decorated with complex wood carvings. Um, we should post some photos of those because yeah. they're really beautiful. Wow. In 2004, a collective effort of Norwegian and Danish profes professional builders, scientists, and volunteers attempted to build a functional replica of the ship. During this new attempt, because uh, they had tried once before and failed, uh, it was discovered, I love this part, that during the initial restoration of the ship, a breach in one of the beams was made and the ship was therefore inadvertently shortened. So they didn't realize this before, but they think that this is why several <laughs> earlier replicas sank, because they made the boat too short. We, we are going to have to do an episode on like the people that like try and often fail to sail replica boats. Yeah, and then we should talk about the Contiki because that's okay. That's a cool story. Yes, but I, gosh, yeah, uh, yeah. So they figured out what the problem was. <laughs> the boat too short. <laughs> that boat too short. And then in 2010, a new new reconstruction was started entitled Saga Oseberg. Using timber from Denmark and Norway and using traditional building methods from the Viking Age, this newest ship was successfully completed. And on June 20th, 2012, the new ship was launched from the city of Tensberg, which is where the burial mound was. Oh. So it must be near water. It must be. The ship floated very well. And in March 2014, it was taken into the open seas under full sail and they got to a speed of 10 knots. So the construction was a success, the ship performed well, and it demonstrated that the ship really could sail, and it wasn't just uh, built for the burial. 
So, so, so that experimental is experimental archaeology. Yeah, that's some um, experimental yeah. archaeology in action. Um, and if you want to take that to another level, I do, I do, I do. We've got news of the raddest master's thesis ever. Oh my God. I'm so jealous. I'm um, going to do this, even though it sounds cold. Yes. And so this experiment was initiated and led by um, an individual whose name I'm going to mispronounce because the robot on the internet. <laughs> so um, Vera Payusta, uh, in the framework of her master's thesis. And so the objective of building a full-scale reconstruction of a Viking Age log house. Yes. <laughs> I know, right? This is like a reality series from PBS. Uh, it should be. Viking house. <laughs> Um, and so the objective was to find answers to several technical construction questions based on archaeological evidence. It is known that in the Viking age, which in the, in Estonia was, um, 800 to 1050 CE. Yeah. So this, this, all this project is happening yes. in Estonia. This is, yes. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, the predominant dwelling place was a horizontal log house constructed with saddle notches <laughs> heated by a chimneyless open rock stove called a karisahi which is a dry stone construction with a pile of heating stones on top of it. So for those saddle notches, basically picture a log cabin or the, that, that game that you play, Lincoln Logs. Like, like oh, where they have the notches yeah. that, that fit together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Ah. Um, buildings of this type, which are called smoke cottages. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah, bro. <laughs> were relatively small and mostly one-roomed. And so there were several questions that this experiment sought to answer. Number one, how long would it take today to build such a house using only authentic tools? Number two, what kind of construction techniques might have been used? Putting one log on top of the other log. (laughs) Yes. And the third question, is the modest choice of tools represented in archaeological material, which, you know, axes, knives, chisels, and timber shaves, um, is that enough to build a house? And so the purpose of the living experiment was to test the quality of the finished building and get a realistic picture of living conditions in the Viking Age in Estonia. So basically her project is, I want to build a Viking house and sleep in it. <laughs> yeah. <I know. laughs> yeah. Um, but they did it, they tried to do it really authentically, right? Yeah. 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 And so um, for the purpose of veracity, it was intended to conduct the experiment in the best possible most authentic way that meant using clothing tools and household equipment appropriate to the time and if possible made directly after the examples of archaeological finds yep this is amazing (laughs) and so the menu Mm. for this project consisted of authentic foods grains meat fish legumes and homemade beer for drinking sheepskins woolen blankets and hay kept participants warm during sleeping what f- what friends she yeah. must have well exactly yeah so um so the people taking part in the building experiment were mainly students or friends and acquaintances acquaintances, acquaintances. <laughs> dear craigslist uh, of the project leader and so it was common that their closest experience to working with an axe was chopping firewood time needed for acquiring the skills necessary for working on the house was not long usually two to three days yeah so that's pretty good to figure out how to how to use a, a yeah. bunch of different Iron Age, or not Iron Age, Viking Age equipment. Yeah. And so considering that participants can only contribute a few days, <laughs> so they're like, yeah, I can come for the weekend. Yeah. But I have to go back to class on Monday. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, and so during this time, they were mostly just learning how to do the thing that they agreed to help her do. Yeah. Um, adding different physical resilience and motivation from people in actual need of a home. Uh, it is obvious that the the time it took these individuals to build a house in total about 4,000 hours Yikes. cannot be directly comparable to what it might have taken an Iron Age family. Yeah, it would have taken them way less because it's like, <laughs> it's cold, we need a house, and we actually know what we're doing. <laughs> that was like a semester. I know. Like, so, that's, <laughs> took, so, they, <laughs> so they took a semester and they built a house. Then what? <laughs> I mean, I've accomplished less in a semester by far. Yeah, and then they had a house. Um, and so they uh, they tested the house um, during the coldest time of the year. Sure. In February, because yeah. she probably was like, dear professor, in September. Yeah. Like, this is why. So in February, they're going to try it out. So during the experiment, temperatures outside stayed constantly around 25 below zero Celsius. Centigrade. Yeah. So that is like being in space. It's really cold. That's an... <laughs> unfathomable level of cold <laughs> like how cold it is outside when you're on a plane yeah. <laughs> like, um and so the roof above their house was covered in a thick layer of snow the experiment's aim was to test the building's ability to maintain temperatures obtained by heating uh, make observations about thermal leakages <laughs> see how successfully the stove worked and observe the movement of smoke during heating Overall, the goal was to see if the house would be fit to live in during days and nights that cold. Oh, God, it's so cold. <laughs> well, don't worry. <laughs> it's going to be a little less cold here in the smoke cottage. <laughs> because when they lit a fire in the stove, it was impossible to stay inside for about half an hour. <laughs> there was smoke everywhere. Uh. So, so, okay. So after the smoke started to clear out, there was about a, a meter of space of clear air. On the floor. Mm -hmm. Can I can I just read this one? <laughs> yes. <laughs> For maintaining the smoke level, the door and mortises, like the, the window cracks, had to stay open, whereas disturbing it was annoyingly simple. Even walking with a heavily hunched back was out of the question <laughs> as it mixed the air layers. So they're like army crawling around. <laughs> trying to trying do not their to like, business. And also not die of like carbon monoxide poisoning. <laughs> yeah. Um and under the smoke, it was possible, although cold, to sit as the fresh air coming through the open door was freezing. Um, she says, "In the smoke above the smoke in the smoke above our heads, it was warm, but impossible to breathe." So pick your pick your poison, I guess. Pick your poison, literally. While the stove was being heated, it was absolutely impossible to do anything inside that required standing up. <laughs> And as that was most of the day, <laughs> like, when would you get stuff done? When people would do all the things, like, when would people do all the things that are necessary to do in a household yeah. or just in general? Um, one possibility is, of course, that we had not so many guests letting out. <laughs> had we not had so many guests letting out our warmth, it could have been possible to heat the house for a shorter period of time, perhaps not even daily, but every other day, as the stove was usually still warm by the morning. Yeah, I'm sure that the actual Vikings in the actual house... We're better at this. <laughs> but it's a really cool experiment, like testing out. Yeah. Is this how this worked? We think this is how because this worked. It, because also, the first time, the first time a Viking built this house, that's probably what happened. <laughs> oh, so, no. It's so smoky. Oh, no. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, what I do? No. Olaf passed out. So um, that's some very cool experimental archaeology. Yeah. Um, and I bet they really worked up an appetite. 
I bet they did. And what and now, <laughs> oh, that, I'm on my Amber, segue. Amber riding on her segue <laughs> uh, to eating like a Viking. So back to those sagas, they tell us a lot about the diet and cuisine of the Vikings, but we also have a lot of firsthand evidence like toilets and dumps that give us actual evidence. Is that what a cesspit is? Yes. It's a toilet? It is a, a pit where filth is stored. Anyway, so we have firsthand archaeological evidence from things like cesspits and middens and garbage dumps that give us actual evidence to corroborate what's in the sagas. So... All this combined information from various sources and in all over the Viking world. So Scandinavia, but also in some parts of what's now the UK, um, suggest a diverse cuisine and ingredients. So um, they had lots of meat in their diet and they had cured, smoked and whey preserved meat. Not like totally whey preserved, man, but like preserved with whey, which provokes lactic acid fermentation, which is how salami is made. You don't say. I do say. That's what I say. What? Yeah. Not specifically with milk products, but it's those bacteria. Salami is fermented meat. Uh, they also what? had. No, I'm not ready. Okay. I'm just. Is it like salami is cured? And when they when it, it, like salami, so it's like sofrasada and like copa. Are those like also fermented? I think so. I think so. It's that, it's that distinctive like, tang that you get that, with the salami. And like prosciutto. No, prosciutto is salt cured. Okay. Okay. I, I wasn't aware that. I didn't know this. I didn't know that salami methods would blow your mind like that. Like I read, I read the script, and I was like, I have literally never heard of this. Are you putting meat in yogurt? No, no I don't know what they did, like but they salami. mixed it. Yeah, yeah. What? Yeah, salami. I'm like dizzy. So like, <laughs> okay, take take some deep breaths. I'm gonna I think keep that talking. Was the problem. <laughs> like hyperventilating. <laughs> they also had sausages, just regular old sausages. Okay. <laughs> Uh, they had they ate fresh meat, boiled it, fried it, whatever. Uh, and then there's also plenty of seafood, bread, porridges, dairy products, veggies, fruit, berries, nuts. They also had uh, beer, mead, bjor. <laughs> <laughs> that's how you say that's how you say beer after a few beers. Bjor, <laughs> which a, a it was strong, actually a strong fruit wine. Yeah, strong how like high, alcoholic high ABV. Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, and then also they imported wine from elsewhere in the world for the rich people. So certain <laughs> livestock were typical and unique to Vikings, including the Icelandic horse. Oh, they're so cute. They're little shaggy Are horses. The, oh, yeah. Yeah. They're the fuzzy guys. Uh, Icelandic cattle, also shaggy. A plethora of sheep breeds, the Danish hen and the Danish goose. <laughs> the Vikings in, in York in what is now the UK. They mostly ate beef, mutton, and pork with small amounts of horse meat. And most of the beef and horse leg bones that we found archaeologically were split lengthways, which means that they were also getting out that marrow. I have had lactic acid fermented horse. Wow, that's really specific. I've had like... Horse salami? Yeah. Oh. Huh. I've had donkey salami. Oh, yeah. I'm hungry. Oh, my God. <laughs> so they were eating that, that good, good meat butter the marrow uh the frequent remains of pig skulls and foot bones on house floors indicate that brain and pig trotters were also popular i wonder if it was like like it is now it's like a bar snack you have it with your bjor uh and then they kept hens for their meat and eggs and then the bones of game birds like grouse and plover and duck and goose have also been found 
Uh, seafood was also important, especially since these are seafaring, very coastal people in a lot of cases. And in some places, it was a larger part of the diet than, than land meat. Um, so whales and walrus were hunted for food in North in Norway and the northwestern parts of the North Atlantic region. And seals were hunted pretty much everywhere. Oysters, mussels, and shrimp were eaten in large quantities, and cod and salmon were popular fish. In the southern regions, herring was also important. Still is. Denmark, they love a herring. Milk and buttermilk were both popular as cooking ingredients and drinks. Have you ever, like, just straight up drunk buttermilk? Yeah. Milk came from cows, goats, and sheep, not just cow, with, you know, the whether it was cow or goat or sheep, it varied depending on where people were. And then fermented milk products, like skier, nope. which, which is, I mean, it's a thing. I mean, great. Go for yeah. it. But it's great. For our Western palates, it's a little for, for this palate. Yeah. For mine as well. Uh, they also made butter and cheese. Delicious. For this palate, hard yes. Yes. Um, so food was often salted and enhanced with spices, some of which were imported, like black pepper, and then others were cultivated locally in herb gardens or harvested in the wild. Oh, they, where they where the Vikings lived? <laughs> the Vikings live in the wild, and that's where they get their herbs. <laughs> um, homegrown spices include caraway, mustard, and horseradish. Nice. And we know that from the Oseberg ship burial. And we know we found plant remains in <laughs> cesspits mm-hmm. of dill, coriander, and wild celery. Nice. And that's from the, from Coppergate in York. Um, thyme, juniper berry, sweet gale, yarrow, rue, and peppercress yum, were also used and cultivated in herb gardens. Uh, Vikings also had a lot of wild foods as part of their diet, so they collected and ate fruits and berries and nuts. Wild crab apples, plums, cherries, rose hips, raspberries, wild berries. Um, depending on where people lived and what was available, um, and the, you know those things have lots of nutrients. They're yeah, they're packed so, with uh, good stuff. so they had like domesticates for like the things, the animals, oh, well, and like grains. Yeah, yeah, and, mm-hmm. and but they did farming. They, I don't think they orcharded. Okay, yeah. Well, also like they they got their fruit wild. Yeah, and, like and also they cultivated herbs though with berries and things. Like they are so like. Pernicious. Yeah, the, that you don't they're really, gonna grow in a Yeah, way. you're like, well, okay. <laughs> oh, I guess I'll eat these berries. And they like fight back if you try to do yeah. something with them. Ow. <laughs> um, yeah, hazelnuts were an important part of the diet. Filberts. Yep. And uh, large amounts of walnut shells have been found in cities like Hedeby. Um The shells of the walnuts were used for dyeing, as in producing cloth colors. Uh, it's also cons- assumed that the nuts were consumed because they're delicious. Um, not for you. You're allergic. No, I'm not. I'm not no Viking. No. Um, the invention and introduction of a special type of plow. Are you ready for this? Oh man! What what excitement? A plow corner. It's called well, literally a plow corner. It's called a mo- a moldboard plow. So basically, it's it's two pieces of the plow joined together to form an outward pointing V, mm-hmm. like like some of those snow plows. And it's like basically it. It moves the dirt outwards from a central furrow, and it apparently it revolutionized agriculture in Scandinavia in the early Viking Age. And so they were farming even the kind of poor rocky soils um, that were in Scandinavia. And so they were growing rye, barley, oat, and wheat, and uh, those things are believed to have been cultivated locally. So they used uh, the grains and, and flour made from those grains to make porridges and and some forms of bread and so we have some remains from bread ovens and we don't know for sure if they leavened their breads um 
or just sort of had flatbreads, but the ovens and the baking utensils that, that we found archaeologically suggest that, that they probably did. Um, something else that we know about Viking food, and also a, a terrific, excellent, oof, geez, <laughs> <laughs> try it again, and a, an excellent article title, Something Rotten in Scandinavia, the world's earliest evidence of fermentation. Man, I wish this had been, I bet they were like, why couldn't we have found this in Denmark? I know. <laughs> oh. So the discovery of the world's oldest storage of fermented fish in mm. southern Sweden provides earliest evidence of fermentation of food and could rewrite Nordic prehistory. I mean, you can't write prehistory. Uh, with findings indicating a far more complex society than previously thought. I mean, that is really cool. That is so cool. Like, Never mind the prehistory writing thing. Don't worry about it. Step aside, expert at the Viking Ship Museum. They're not in the wild no more. Oh, yeah. So, this unique discovery was made while excavating a 9,200-year-old settlement at what was once a lake in Blekinge in southern Sweden, the, which is which is close to Denmark, so... Yeah. So close! Something rotten in almost Denmark! <laughs> the team found remains of tree bark and enormous amounts of fish. I mean, really, though. No, truly enormous. Uh, about 30,000 fish bones per square meter. And oh, my God, per square meter. Yeah. I, I was excited at 30,000. I'm like, no, that's no, like no, six no. fish. No, but no, that's- <laughs> Yeah, because fish bones are tiny yeah. and fish have many, many, many of them. But this is just like per square meter, a dense layer oh my gosh. of it's just nothing but fish bones. And so, um, Adam Boethius. Yeah, I think it might be like Boethius. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's spelled it's spelled like Boethius. Okay. Um, so a researcher from Lund, um, in Sweden says, our findings of large-scale fish fermentation, a traditional way of preserving fish, indicate that not only was this area settled at the time, uh, it was also able to support a large community. It wasn't just fish fish hanging out. (laughs) No. Um, And so these these findings indicate a different timeline, uh, which means that Nordic foragers settled much earlier and started to take advantage of the lakes and sea to harvest and process fish. And that from and so the researcher goes on to add that from a global perspective, the development in the Nordic region could correspond with that of the Middle East at the time. Yeah, so things that were happening in the Middle East at the time, so starting to uh, be agricultural, sedentary, yeah. using the resources locally, making making pottery. At yes, that point. yes, they were. Uh, and the archaeologists at the site found a quote gutter feature. Uh, which was something unknown from this area at the time. And so the feature itself appeared to be a 2.8 meter long and 0.4 meter wide gutter shaped pit, which had been broadened at the southern end to a width of about 0.9 meters. The feature was discovered beneath the oldest cultural layer, which at this location held large quantities of fish, bone, and pine bark. So basically what was happening is they got a lot of fish parts, and they put them in this essentially a trough with with a bunch of stuff, and they they left it to ferment. Okay, so the pine bark was to like make it taste tiny. No, it was to provide um, in the same way that oak provides tannins to wine. I think the pine was doing something to provide some sort of chemical because okay. so these people didn't have uh, large scale salt production, and they weren't making containers to to um, store the fish. So 
this specific type of fermentation requires cold climate and it's actually kind of complex. They, the pine bark, uh, among other things, so including seal fat, um, was used to acidify the fish. So it's that okay. same like lactic acid bacteria idea where the, the uh, bacteria that you want are those that survive in an anaerobic environment without oxygen. Mm-hmm. And they uh, basically keep bad bacteria like botulism from from uh, accumulating and from growing on whatever you're trying to ferment. Okay. And so fermentation is a way of preserving things because it doesn't rot. Right. So this is just like you ferment the fish and you take it out and nom, 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 nom. You're not making like garum paste. Like, I don't know what the end product was. Yeah. It so, was either so, like so pieces gar- of fish. So garum is this, this stuff that the Romans The Romans loved it. And so it's, it's, Nasty. it's like... It's, it's like um um fish sauce Vietnamese fish yeah sauce. it's fish sauce but uh but it sounds more frightening than that well because they just like put it in jars and left it yeah so I guess yeah. <laughs> that's what's frightening about it is yeah like opening and so the you jar. just like have a jar full of like fish goop fish goop um and then they're like you could put it on everything so episode you put it on your dessert which they did yeah which they did they were garum mad um but Ugh. that's what i thought when you have like this trough and i was like is it narrower because you're like pressing on it like how i'm not like, sh- i but no they like, say okay so they could be so basically they combined the fish with pine bark and seal fat and then they wrapped the entire mess in seal and wild boar skins and then they buried it in a pit and they covered it with with mud. So then I guess they unburied it at some point and what was left was fermented fish that they then enjoyed. My god. Hey, they <laughs> liked it. I know. I and know. fermented stuff has like vitamin C and B vitamins oh, that no. you need I, and yeah. And, and who knows it might be good. Like it, lots I, yeah. of fermented stuff is delicious. Salami. Yeah. <laughs> I'm all about it now. Um and so with that tasty morsel, right. we'll leave you until next week when we have Thanks Viking Second Helpings. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have even more Viking knowledge for you. We're going to talk about Viking trade networks, weapons and warfare, sports and games, some mythology, some storytelling, and lots more. Yeah. Maybe we'll find a Viking to interview. Oh, well, that seems unlikely. Half an hour ago, I didn't know that the salami was fermented. Like. <laughs> Yeah, uh, welcome to The Dirt, a podcast where anything can happen, and often does. <laughs> All right, well. Um, Thank you for listening. Yeah. Uh, if you have a minute, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Please and thank you. You can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, and wherever else you get podcasts in your ears. Except Spotify. <laughs> you can follow us on Facebook at The Dirt Podcast. And please do follow us on Facebook because... We're going to start doing lots more posting of cool archaeological news items mm-hmm. and the occasional Facebook Live vidya. Yeah. Yeah. Because we have um, too much news to fit too in much. old news. We do. And too many things that are just too cool. Too fun. Yeah. Um, and so we're going to start sharing that with all y'all. All y'all. Uh, yeah. So our friends over at the American Anthropological Association. Um, and our fellow podcast partners also do all kinds of very cool stuff across all the subfields of anthropology. And we'll be sharing more of that. Mm-hmm. So you can learn about our our friends and partners over there. Yeah. And you can also find us on the Twitter. Um, we are at Dirt Podcast. Mm-hmm. You can look at our faces. Yeah, we'll post them. And other photos uh, on Instagram at 
the dirt pod. Mm-hmm. And you can see all of that social media smooshed together on thedirtpod.com. And if you would like to send us an email about anything at all. But Are you a Viking? Do you want to talk to us? Yeah. Send us an email uh, at thedirtpodcast at gmail.com. Send us a raven. They're, look, they were aware of nature and they were in the wild and they had ravens. Hey, how about supporting us on Patreon? <laughs> we love our patrons and they help us so much and you can become one of them. You can be a monthly subscriber or a single time donor. Either way, we would be extremely grateful. And you can do that at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. Do we have a new patron that we've not shouted out? We do. Trisha. Trisha. It's okay. You don't have to do it. Trisha, thank you so much for supporting us. That's so generous of you. And we love you. And we're so glad you like the show. All of our patrons. We're so glad that you guys like us enough to, I know. to toss us some occasional money. It's so wonderful. You keep sending us money. And, and we love and it. And it pays for us to put these things on the internet. It does. And it pays for me to be in this room right now. Yes. Oh, oh gosh. So I'm like getting emotional. I know. You can learn more about the things that we do with our Patreon funds over at thedirtpod.com slash goals. Thank you all so much for listening and for hopefully enjoying this Slightly more raw and uncut version of Amber and me recording together. And, and I guess it's lunchtime for cats. So yeah, the cats, we're the cats gonna, chomping before, down. Before the crunching starts happening. Yeah. Oh, we're going to go get some tacos. Yeah, let's go Amber's get some in tacos. California. I'm in California. Okay. So we're going to strap on our masks and um, head out and get some tacos. It's very smoky out. It's we don't fair. just wear masks. But we're doing okay. Yeah. And we love you. We love you. Bye. Bye. Bye.